Hello there to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners. It sure has been quite a good while since I was on the air last, although it does seem hard to believe that it probably was just four days ago, but sometimes it seems longer than that. But I am glad to be back on the air, and during that time, um, I had um, other stuff going on, but you know, that's to be expected, uh, because as I've said before, and I'd say it again, you know, life doesn't always revolve around uh, podcasting, but during that time, I did have... um, enough um, time available to get prepared for what lies in store with this uh, next uh, podcast segment. So it's always important to be able to do enough research in order to be prepared to go on the air um, the next go-around from when I was on the air the previous time. It's always important to have as much information uh, available because if not, then how are we going to be ready to move forward based upon what we've already learned uh, from the last go-around? I'm not a teacher, but, you know, I also know that uh, being organized is very essential, not just for life in general, but when doing podcasts, you've got to be able to present your information to the audience. And in order to do that, you need to have the facts straight. You need to have your information ready to go so that you all, my listeners, are entertained, but entertained for the right reasons. You all come away, come leaving away, knowing that you all learned something knew that you didn't know beforehand. That is the most important objective. So in this uh, podcast segment to uh, Utah Springs, the final battle of the American Revolution's uh, Southern Campaign, we are going to now be getting into um, skirmishes, and that is skirmishes that are going to lead up to this um, large-scale confrontation at Utah Springs. You know, we often assume that, you know, armies chase each other and then decide to just duke it out on a battlefield. Yes, uh, scouting goes on beforehand, but the scouting has to be done um, secretively, uh, covertly. In other words, scouts just can't come up out of nowhere and say, oh, can we come study your army? That's not how it works, folks. Uh, But scouting has to be done secretively in order to get, in order to be one step ahead should in the event there does come a battle. Of course, battles can be, they don't have to be big, but based upon what we're dealing with here is that we are going to be looking at a um, medium to large size battle. We may not be seeing troops in the, we may not be seeing each side having 5,000 men, but it's a medium to large size battle. After all, this battle the lead up to Utah Springs is more about not just the numbers, but about who's going to be able to control South Carolina's interior, being the land that is uh, well west of Charleston. We're also going to learn about uh, such things as uh, buck and ball. We're going to learn about uh, the types of um, the types of uh, weaponry that would have been used uh, going into uh, battle. Of course, it is fair to say that, you know, in order to fire at your enemy, you need to have either a musket or a rifle. But at the same time, I think it'd be worth learning more about the weaponry that's at hand because, um, you know, not everyone is equipped with the same kind of weaponry. But at the same time, whatever weaponry you do have, as long as it's going to serve as an asset, that is all that matters. We also need to learn a little bit more about uh, the lineup. In other words, how does, say, General Nathaniel Green on the American side line up his forces? And how does that um, 
say, how is that going to be different from, say, uh, what Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Stewart on the British side does? In other words, we don't have to, we're not going to be getting into every, you know, minute detail, but we need to have some understanding of how this battle is going to ensue because it's not a matter of I triple dog dare you to come out and fight us. Battles themselves are often fluke things that happen. So let's be prepared uh, to uh, for our first leadoff question. We got a lot of ground to cover, but I know we can do this. So let's get the show on the road. Our first uh, leadoff question will be the following: What happened around 4 a.m. on the morning of September 8th, 1781? Of course, when I think of uh, 4 a.m., I would most of us nowadays would be you know thinking you know we're still asleep. Why do we need to be up at 4 a.m.? I mean, there, there better be a good reason. Well, we should just keep in mind real quick that even in 18th century days, it was very common for, um, for people, especially families living on farms, to be up at 4 a.m. to start their day. After you know, We have to remember that families didn't stay up till 10 and 11 o'clock at night. They were usually in bed by 7 or 8 o'clock at best. But the big question here is what happened around 4 a.m.? On the morning of September 8th, 1781, General Green, General Nathaniel Green, I should say, he and his army left their encampment at Burdell's plantation to march onward toward Utah Springs. Now, last night, uh, my wife, real quick, she said to me, you know, Kirk, are you sure it's uh, pronounced as Utah Springs? Because when I think of the word Utah, I think of the state being spelled U-T-A-W, of course, uh, the pronunciation here for Utah is E-U-T-A-W. She heard, um, based upon um, pronunciation via uh, phone, that there were some who pronounced it as Utah, and then there were those who said Utahville. Well, I don't, I'm not a South Carolinian, but the only way I could probably um, determine once and for all the real pronunciation would be to go down to South Carolina in the future and ask uh, someone how how would they pronounce in other words would they say Utah or would they say Utahville the bottom line is as long as it's pronounced to the best of to the best of my ability that's all that matters so yes around 4 a.m. on the morning of September 8 1781 General Nathaniel Green and his army left their encampment at Burdell's plantation to march onward toward Utah Springs. Now, when Green's army is leaving, you don't would it be fair to say that they're going to be leaving with protection? Yes. Green's army was protected by an entourage of regiments from William Washington's cavalry. Remember folks, William Washington is cousin to the commander of the Continental Army being that of George Washington. Green's army also has, um, not only does he have William Washington's cavalry, but um, Light Horse Harry Lee's uh, cavalry unit. Remember, uh, Harry Lee, of course, his nickname was Light Horse, but he is the father of future, um, of a future prominent um, uh, son who uh, will play a pivotal role in history later on down the road, being that of uh, Robert E. Lee. And then there was a small proceeding party led by Major James Armstrong. So, in other words, folks, Green's army isn't going to go unprotected. 
but there's going to be enough of a protection so that if in the event they do get encountered upon uh, by the British, there's enough protection to keep Green and his army from, uh, from falling apart. There's enough uh, protection on the right and left-hand sides to where if one side is attacked, there will be another side, regardless of whether it's on the left or the right, that will provide some form of protection for Green and his army to fall back onto. The bottom line is nobody can afford to be a sitting duck. Now, British Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Stewart's intelligence findings have not been uh, very productive. His intelligence findings backfired on him, largely due to the fact that he had not been made aware of Green's newest movement advance. So, in other words, British Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Stewart has no idea now that Green and his forces left uh, their encampment on the morning of September 8th, 1781, being that of uh, 4 a.m. The American forces have shown that they have been able to thoroughly uh, navigate, not just around roads and paths in general, but they have been able to thoroughly navigate the terrain, being that of roads or pathways, that have greatly avoided infested waters. And what are those infested waters that could be a real problem? The swamp waters. So the British are now all of a sudden, they become more the exact opposite when it comes to intelligence findings. But it's not so much that they have become deliberately lazy in their intelligence findings, but there is something they are really lacking. What do you think it is that the British are lacking that the Americans have? The British are lacking. The British have a cavalry, but they don't have the same kind of cavalry network as the Americans have. The Americans have far more um, horses, and they have far more soldiers mounted on horseback whom can um, get from point A to point B in a short period of time. The British given the British don't have much cavalry, that means that their uh, response times are going to be longer in terms of cavalry officers being able to provide valuable intelligence to such men as uh, Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Stewart. It's one thing to provide information to your superior commanding officer, but if you can't give, give that information within a critical or definitive time period, by the time the um, officer of higher rank status receives it, his opponent will have probably already beaten him to that exact uh, to the uh, exact spot where um, where an engagement um, could soon occur, or would just be a matter of time before the engagement itself does occur. So, yes. So the biggest um, deficiency for the British here is having the lack of cavalry. Because, it, it, because the lack of cavalry, cavalry alone is negatively impacting their ability behind scouting to obtaining information ahead of time where the enemy, being that of the Americans, whom are already a step ahead of them, are now outsmarting their, um, their enemy, being the British, whom are struggling. Now, if we go um, about a week earlier to August 31st, 1781, there was a battle 
It wasn't the grandest battle, but there was a battle. It was referred to as the Battle of Parker's Ferry that took place uh, roughly 30 miles west of Charleston. British Major Thomas Fraser and his Loyalist Dragoons were severely ambushed. I'm sure most of you probably know what the term ambush means, right? But for those young people out there who are new to my uh, podcasts and haven't come across uh, the term ambush before, I will just tell you that ambush itself refers to a surprise attack. It's where you're being caught off guard. You had no means of, um, or you lacked the means to uh, prepare your own system of defense so that if in the event a surprise attack did occur, perhaps on your end with your defense, you would not have sustained as great of a loss if the opposite had happened, which it did happen. British Major Thomas Fraser and his Loyalist Dragoons had no uh, proper means of uh, defensive measures, and because they did not have any proper means of uh, defensive measures, they lost about 100 men. The loss of cavalry from August 31st alone, once again, would have a negative impact. Not just on a negative impact at the present moment, but how about going forward, come a week later when Utah Springs ensues. Fewer horses meant less opportunities to move faster in obtaining enemy intelligence findings. It's, you know, we shouldn't say that the British are doomed, but just having a lack of, not having the highest amount of cavalry does have a profound impact, not just short-term, but long-term. I don't know if I told you all this from the previous podcast, but um, but if I didn't, that's okay. It's actually a bit of um, a very uh, fascinating information. I've known, of course, for some time that South Carolina, and I've probably mentioned to you, mentioned this to you all from uh, previous uh, podcast segments that might have pertained to um, revolutionary war conflicts in the Southern uh, campaign, uh, most notably when we uh, talked about um, the book. Uh, being uh, the race to the Dan or the um, to the end of the world, um, Nathaniel Green, General Lord Charles Cornwallis, and the race to the Dan with uh, with uh, throughout the Carolina campaign. But in South Carolina alone, folks, uh, that state saw two hundred battles, the most of any um, in America's thirteen colonies at that time. The majority of the two hundred battles were skirmishes. But they were uh, skirmishes that obviously led to such uh, battles like, um, like say, for example, Utah Springs, uh, 96, uh, Hobkirk's Hill, Kings Mountain, uh, just to name a few of the um, prominent uh, battles that were fought in South Carolina. But just keep in mind, folks, that whenever one were to ask you how, what state uh, during the um, American Revolutionary War had more battles think of South Carolina, 200. Now, the morning of September 8, 1781, saw Lieutenant Colonel Stewart send out 300 men that comprised of his 3rd, 19th, 63rd, and 64th, and 84th regiments of foot. They were sent out primarily to look for supplies, most notably food being that of sweet potatoes, because uh, historians have been able to determine where... Um, where part of this battle took place, um, 
occurred along what is now a present-day uh, farm that uh, grows uh, sweet potatoes. The American army um, moved by the British party nearby, but they did so unscathed. Would it be fair to say that all of this was taking place well before the sun rose? Yes. And around 6 a.m., September 8th, two American deserters from the 2nd North Carolina. Deserters. Why in the world would they be deserting right now? I'm not sure if this is done intentionally, but could it be that maybe by deserting, they are trying to find a way to lure these uh, 300 men into a trap. In other words, maybe the two deserters are going to share some information, and then once the deserters leave, they're going to um, notify their commanders above them to um, get the trap in place. So, two American deserters from the 2nd North Carolina did advise Lieutenant Colonel Stewart, that the enemy, being Green's army, was nearby. Therefore, Lieutenant Colonel Stewart sent Major John Coffin out with 140 infantry and 50 dragoons to survey um, enemy location. Let's see what happens now, folks. Major John Armstrong of the 3rd North Carolina uh, Regiment, he was their commander, he sent scouts out on a mission to monitor British movement. Around 8 a.m. on September 8th, Major Armstrong's scouts spotted Major Coffin's forces. Both sides fired on one another. However, the Americans dropped back in enough time to where cavalry commander Lieutenant Colonel Harry Lee was nearby. Harry Lee went about setting up an ambush maneuver that placed his cavalry on the side of the road in the woods to the right. And the infantry under his command were stationed in the woods to the left. Boy, how about some double trickery right here? We're not going to be surprised from just one end. We can, Something tells me that the British are going to get a... Um, that they're going to get um, a double um, strike from both ends. British Major Coffin, along with his infantry and dragoons, proceeded forward in their march, only to be attacked from both sides, which resulted in his losing roughly 40 out of 50 dragoons. Folks, 40 out of 50 dragoons. You think about it, these are the guys who can ride on horseback as well as get off of horseback. They have a dual threat. They can, you know, fire at um, a soldier on horseback with a pistol, but they can also get off their horse and they can um, serve as light infantry. 40 out of 50 dragoons are lost or, or, or either wounded or killed. That's 80% of Major Coffin's um, loss right there alone. 40 out of 50, folks. That's 80%. I think it'd be very hard to replace that much loss in a short amount of time. Not just a short amount, but maybe even long term. Major Coffin lost many infantrymen as well. 
the loss of infantry and cavalrymen alone was hard. But even worse, folks, the loss of these infantry and cavalrymen came from some of the best units, the best fighting units. And now this alone has made things all the more challenging for British Commander Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Stewart. Sure, losing uh, soldiers from a unit is bad enough, but when you lose them from the best, that is, the best men whom have seen the most combat experience, how do I make up for this loss? You know, I can't just call up Parliament or the Crown tomorrow. You know, we don't have telephones, but I can't just call them up and say, hey, you know, uh, I need you to bring um, some more soldiers. Um, okay, we'll do that. The only problem is they might not be here for another three or four months, given they've got to go 3,000 miles across the ocean. So replacing these soldiers is simply not an easy task. For every soldier, remember, folks, that for every British soldier who's wounded, killed, um, can't fight due to disease, um, illness. It, ta it, it causes a lot of strain on the higher level uh, commands. How are they going to find men whom are willing to take up their cause? And are the men that they are recruiting, do they share the same loyalties? Do they share the same convictions? Do they share the true meaning behind what it means to um, go after um, the patriots? There are a lot of unknowns. Despite the setbacks endured by Major Coffin's cavalry and infantry forces, Lieutenant Colonel Stewart was not hesitant whatsoever in that he seized upon an opportunity informing his men into engagement. Given that Green's army wasn't far away, Lieutenant Colonel Stewart dispatched out another small troop unit whom sought to back up what remained of Major Coffin's forces. Okay, the forces that uh, were not um, harmed, although they were caught off guard by um, by uh, Lieutenant Colonel Harry Lee's um, cavalry and um, infantry forces. But fortunate enough, there are those whom did survive under Coffin's command to where um, Lieutenant Colonel Stewart is going to send a small troop out to help uh, reinforce uh, Coffin's uh, existing forces. The smaller British unit did come upon the American Army's uh, primary troop corps positioned from the front as they were nearly one to two miles from the British encampment. And what do you know, fighting soon erupted where large rounds of firing ensued on both sides from right to left. As the Americans were closing in, British troops got moved into proper positioning where the inevitable was soon to follow, a major open field battle engagement. Folks, we are getting very, very close to what's about to lie in store, an actual open field battle. Now, of course, I know the Southern Campaign is all has pretty much been about irregular-style fighting. Well, there still is irregular-style fighting going on, but let's keep in mind, folks, that, that the battle that will shortly be taking place, Utah Springs was the last open-field um, traditional warfare um, battle that the American Revolutionary War in the South would have. 
How did Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Stewart's military preparations proceed based upon regimental aligning? So I feel it was best to give you all some kind of understanding of how, um, of how troops are going to be aligned. After all, you know, we, it's one thing to have one column of troops in the front, another in the back, and so forth. But to me, that's a little too predictable. Wouldn't it be fair to say that, okay, you might have one or two regiments of troops in the, in the middle, and then you need to have troops on the left and the right-hand side, and then you need to have some reserves in the far back? To me, that just makes it more effective, because if you put everybody in the front, come battle time, when it comes time to fall back, where are you going to have any reinforcements to guide those whom have been firing all this time when they fall back? How are the reinforcements going to guide those whom have been seeing all this fighting so that, you know, when a retreat happens, will the retreat itself be um, one that's going to make or break the army? Something tells me I could probably be mentioning that again somewhere down the road in this segment, but it's just these things, folks, that we have to be reminded of that coordination alone is essential you know and how are you going to how are you going to place some of your best troops how are you going to place the backups how are you going to place those who may not have the most experience but how are you going to place them in the grand scheme of things so that when it comes their turn to fire that they are going to have the confidence to fire at the enemy and they're still going to be able to hold their ground when faced with a barrage of uh, volleys from enemy end. So, to me, based upon what I read with regards to Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Stewart's uh, military preparations, to me, they were probably about as best as they um, could have been done. I mean, I, I'm not a military um, expert when it comes to uh, fortifying, when it comes to general fortifications, not so much with a uh, fort, uh, but really with how you go about getting your uh, units assembled. But to me, Al Lieutenant Colonel Stewart did everything there was, given the circumstances he was in. So for starters, he saw to it that the best troops, rather I should say that, for, that the best troops in the 18th century, in 18th century warfare, got placed along the right side or rather the position along the right-hand column. At Utah Springs, the best troops, or I should say the elite, were led by Major John Marshbanks, whom got placed around a creek. Why would you get placed around a creek? Well, folks, I mean, I, I know that it, it sounds odd, but the creek, uh, this creek where his, the best troops got placed contained thick bushes, Thick bushes that could um, protect those uh, elite troops from um, from not having to undergo um, being exposed at a moment's notice. If they are uh, surrounded by thick bushes, uh, large trees that can um, that can provide some form of uh, even what we might think of as camouflage disguise, then that will give these troops a better. Um, a better sense of protection knowing that when it comes time to fire, they will have the means to fire, or let alone um, perhaps conduct an ambush if the, if the conditions are just right on the battlefield to, to do it based upon whether or not the enemy breaks, the enemy's lines break. 
So in the thick bushes are grenadiers and light infantry. Uh, remember, the grenadiers are the ones who carry the heavy equipment. Um, that, well, rather, they, they have more um, equipment or belongings to uh, carry, but they are some of your more taller uh, troops. They are the ones that are going to be willing to, um, to take the uh, fall, meaning that they will be the ones that are more likely to be hit. Um, so they will be the first to um, make the sacrifices. The light infantry usually are the ones who do the scouting ahead of time. They're not carrying a whole lot of equipment, but they can get around from point A to point B and do uh, basically the homework for the grenadiers before um, a major battle would ensue. So therefore, for Major Marsh Banks, the grenadiers and the light infantry are the ones whom are um, the elite troops who are placed being placed around the creek. Now, following Major Marsh Banks, or rather I should say following Major Marsh Banks' elite forces were the 3rd Regiment's called the Buffs. It had nothing to do with uh, muscular strength, folks, although these uh, the Buffs probably were in, you know, top-notch shape. But the reason why they are referred to as the Buffs is due to the facings they wore on their coats. Left of the 3rd Regiment was a small group of soldiers whom comprised, or rather I should say made up, the larger 84th Highland Regiment. The center line was made up of Lieutenant Colonel John Harris Kruger's loyalists whom prevailed at the Siege of 96 uh, around the middle of 1781. Following um, Lieutenant uh, Colonel uh, Kruger's loyalists um, was followed next in line by the 63rd and 64th uh, regiments, and to the left would have been Major Coffin's dragoons, and the artillery was um, being that of the guns was along the road. And I'm not talking guns like rifle and muskets, artillery in this sense being like, you know, cannons. Now, another thing that's important to point out here, and it, it's something that we all could easily forget. It's not the worst thing, but I do think it's an important reminder. I was very um, surprised to learn this when I read the book, but it probably shouldn't have come as a surprise at all. For starters, we do forget that those whom have served in the American Revolutionary War, you know, you have some who serve a couple of years and then return back to their um, farms to tend to their families. They might see action later on. But then you have some who've, who've been fighting in this war ever since the first shots were fired, either were fired at Lexington and Concord. And if they weren't there, they would have participated, say, at Bunker Hill but most notably, a majority of these soldiers whom have been fighting, most notably on the British side, have been fighting in this war since the New York campaign of 1776. So the majority, if not nearly all loyalist units whom were established from the Southern campaign's beginnings, including the lead up to Utah Springs, the majority, if not all, Loyalist units had been formed when hostilities had been taking place within the Northern and Middle Colony campaigns. I should say battle action. Northern Loyalists had greater levels of success and respect, considering these troops got placed under the protection of British forces throughout New York City, including having been fighting side-by-side side since 1776, 
during the time the New York campaign began, not long after the uh, Declaration of Independence had been approved. Since, uh, and yes, as I said, that um, the troops got placed under the protection of British forces throughout New York City, including having been fighting side by side since 1776 with their British and Hessian comrades. Loyalists in the Carolinas never held this distinction. Could it be that perhaps they just weren't valued like their northern loyalist brethren whom had been fighting for such an extensive period of time and knew what it took to uh, fight in a war from a sense of um, greater levels of commitment? Uh, perhaps so. It could. It, I think it'd be fair to say that there probably is um, some favoritism, even some partisanship here between North and South. But Northern Loyalists, folks, are the bulk of um, Loyalist units fighting in the Carolinas. Sure, the British have tried to raise Loyalist militias and Loyalist regiments involving colonial peoples in the South, but it just has not been a proven success. Remember, folks, the British don't realize that what they are in, in the middle of is that, yes, they're trying to um, get a stronghold on the southern colonies, but what they don't realize is that the greater conflict lies w amongst the people, in this case, the people of South Carolina, whom are at each other's throat, more so than, well, I'm on the side of the uh, patriots and I'm on the side of the British. Was there a large uh, brick house that overlooked the British encampment? Now, I know this sounds like an odd question for me to be asking. What, what is so important about this question? Well, it's not so much whether or not a large brick house is present that, in which it overlooks the British encampment. The brick house itself is going to be discussed even more so in other podcast segments down the road. So it could be that this, um, if there is a brick house, that it could serve as a means of, um, of a safety measurement benefiting one side, whereas the other side won't have access to this. So the answer is yes, the brick house itself had already been fortified by British troops. There you have it, folks. It's not just an ordinary house. There is a, this, uh, to them, this is a house that has been uh, fortified by the means of being able to oversee um, enemy uh, movement that would be coming, that would be trying to uh, infiltrate the um, encampment. So this um, brick house itself had been fortified by British troop forces just before the official Battle of Utah Springs commenced on September 8th. Loyalist riflemen troops stayed behind. Okay, somebody's got to stay behind and protect this uh, um, bastion of, or uh, fort. So Loyalist riflemen troops stayed behind come September 8th to defend the campground. Near the brick house was a large barn that gave more coverage protection, or rather I should say that provided more coverage protection. Lieutenant Colonel Stewart instructed Major Henry Sheridan of the New York Volunteers to fall back to the house and barn in the event the army as a whole got were to be driven back. 
So if the army as a whole is driven back, there has to be some line of reinforcement that could hold the ground around the not only just the encampment, but hold the ground to this um, brick house and barn. Because if the British can't hold on to the brick house and the barn, it will fall into American hands. And not only just fall into American hands, but perhaps an American victory could it, could it be achieved to where the British won't be able to know where to go to next for higher ground um, safety measures. And for the British, not um, there is small artillery between the brick house and the barn. So if you're on the side of the British, you might not have as many men as Nathaniel Green's army does on the American side, but you do have some advantages. Should you be forced to uh, retreat back as a whole, you've got a barn and a brick house, and you've also got some artillery that can be used to um, thwart off um, enemy uh, ambushes, to thwart off, um, to thwart off um, multiple uh, advancements. Now, at what time did General Green's army begin its attack on the morning of September 8, 1781? The answer is 9 a.m. His militia was placed in the front. The Continentals were comprised in the second line, and his reserve forces made up the third line, the third line being that of artillery pieces with militia and Continentals. Four groups of militia comprised um, Amer the American First Line. Militiamen from North and South Carolina, serving under such skilled officers like Andrew Pickens to Francis Marion, just to name a few of the uh, well-known officers. And I should point out to you that these uh, militiamen, given that they were up front, they were no ordinary uh, militiamen. In other words, the militia units were no ordinary militia units. How so? Well, many of these militiamen had, were seasoned veterans. They had seen previous fighting experiences from Kings Mountain, Cowpens, Blackstock's Farm. You know, I've said it before, I'd say it again. For a long time, militiamen or militia themselves were frowned upon, simply in part because they came and went as they pleased. It was this I, me, myself mentality. George Washington had very little use and respect for the militia. But what do you know? Over time, the militia have matured. The militia have what it takes to fight. They have gradually abandoned the I, me, myself mentality and have instead focused on the greater cause, where it not only just impacts them, but everyone else around them in their unit. How about I, me, my, how about us, we, ourselves? Cohesiveness, meaning that it's the whole army, the whole unit. So the militia, to me, have done a complete 360 to where they are now not afraid to be up in the front. They're not afraid to fire a couple of rounds, retreat, but do so in a formal manner, not one of being so scared out of their wits to where they become sitting ducks with the British chasing them with uh, bayonets fixed in place. 
The most famous units in Greene's army were Maryland Continentals and the Delaware Regiment, whose services in the Revolutionary War stretched back to the Northern Campaign. But come August of 1780 at Camden, South Carolina, these famed units were nearly annihilated. But before 1780 ended, they regrouped to where what had happened at Camden became archived history. You know, that uh, Camden debacle was just, um, it was horrible. And it would have been fair to have said that after Camden, what is the future of the Southern Continental Army like? What's the future of this, of this war? Um, thank heavens that, uh, that the Continental Congress finally allowed George Washington to choose his to choose his commander because the Continental Congress was having that um, op- was having that right. They feared that if one man alone had the power to choose whomever he wanted as a, as a as a commander of a force, most notably that of the uh, of a region being like that of the South, that perhaps the commander, the Continental Army, was having too much power in hand to where his power alone could have been seen as unchecked. Well, what do you know? George Washington was enduring another low point, but yet he had enough courage to say to to Congress, look, I'm in charge of the Continental Army. I've seen my highs. I've seen the lows, but we still have this war. We've still got the British. We've still got them in a stranglehold to where even they themselves are struggling to fund an unpopular war 3,000 miles away. But if you let me select my man, and I know who I want, and if you let me select him, he can do some amazing reversals of fortune to where this Continental Army will be reinvigorated, it will be reinvented, and and if and if this all happens like it like it will with time, perhaps the tide will turn. Well, it did. Of course, it just didn't happen overnight. But the bottom line is, by giving George Washington the ammunition he needed in going about choosing whom he wanted as his commander for the Southern Continental Army, Washington got the flexibility and and leeway he need, he needed to ensure that. That, um, that the war itself would still be going on come um, the start of 1781 to where a drastic reversal of fortune happened, where the British were now losing, were gradually losing their momentum. And I'm beginning to wonder if with Utah Springs just around, um, just, just in um, a near corner site, are the Americans going to be able to reverse their um to reverse past misfortunes. In other words, you know, we've seen some struggles at Hobkirk's Hill, Ute, uh, um, 96, Guilford Courthouse. I mean, Green has held the army together, but he just has not been able to come through with that smashing victory. What really was the primary objective behind linear warfare style fighting in the 18th century? Maybe I've mentioned this question before, but I know, based upon what I have said now, or just a moment ago, it's been worded differently, and perhaps that's good. Well, linear warfare didn't focus entirely upon imposing casualties. 
but instead this style of conventional fighting sought to create uncertainty within the enemy's ranks and ultimately forced them off the field where retreats alone could either make or break the enemy's long-term stronghold. So think about it, folks. We're not so much concerned about whether or not we're going to um, kill 50 to 75 of the enemy's soldiers. We want to um, create a lot of uncertainty in a short amount of time to where if they can no longer hold their line, they will retreat. But if they do retreat, will it be one that's formal or one that's chaotic? If it's chaotic, we've got them to the point where we can fix our bayonets and start charging at them. You know, remember, folks, bayonets were used at the very end. Once you you knew that you had gotten your force, gotten the enemy into a position where they became so vulnerable, so weak, that they had no means of um, truly defending their um, their terrain, they were in a complete state of disarray. You knew it was time right away to get those bayonets fixed and start charging them within 50 to 75 yards of where they were to where they panicked in sheer terror. Command and control is very crucial in linear warfare given commanders had to be nearby their units and ensure in ensuring verbal orders got relayed to officers below whom directed or rather I should say oversaw their troops movement. Officers were at their best when taking on direct active roles. Oh, I, I would have to absolutely agree with that. Because we had, you could see for yourself or learn for yourself really what was at stake on the battlefield. There's more to it than just saying, okay, present your arms, make ready, take aim, fire. There's more to that. You've got to know where your enemy's weakest points could be on a battlefield. Is there a gap? And if so, take advantage of that um, of that gap to where once you can um, launch some kind of surprise attack on the enemy, they won't be able to fall back uh, in a uh, hastily in a hastily manner. What weaponry would have been widely used by most Continental Army soldiers? Well, do you believe it would have been muskets or rifles? The answer is muskets. How about the French Charleville muskets as well as the British Brown Bess muskets? Archaeological evidence from such battle sites like Camden, Guilford Courthouse to 96 have shown that uh, the Charleville muskets were the primary choice of firing weaponry for Continental troops. Militia, most militiamen did, did in fact have muskets, but they also, believe it or not, had rifles, including Fowlers. And if any of y'all aren't sure what Fowlers are, they are hunt hunting guns. Now, muskets and rifles do have unique advantages and disadvantages. Most muskets could fire at best between 50 and 100 yards. Rifles, on the other hand, could fire 100 yards or more. But one thing I do know is that, uh, based upon what I've learned at Williamsburg, when going to Colonial Williamsburg for so long, it's much easier to reload a musket than it is a rifle. Muskets, um, muskets um, are lighter to carry versus a rifle. Uh, muskets are easier to clean out than rifles. 
And it is fair to say that most people are more likely to have easier access to a musket than they are to a rifle. If the average middling family made uh, 12 pounds a year for, for annual income, middling, of course, we need to remember is a, a sh another term for what we think of today as middle class. Um, middling families probably having, say, between maybe 25, 50 acres of land or just right over 50 acres. The average middling family making 12 pounds a year in terms of money, what are they going to afford, be able to afford, that is, a musket or a rifle? A musket. The average musket probably would have cost you maybe six pounds. A rifle, on the other hand, would cost you at best 12 pounds or more. So the average middling family is not going to be able to afford to spend their, their 12 pounds of yearly income on a rifle because that one piece alone is going to uh, pretty much eat up everything that they've worked and saved up for um, for, for the entire year's worth of uh, labor. So uh, the muskets were your standard military weapon uh, for, for the time in which the Revolutionary War was fought. Muskets fired large uh, caliber balls. For the English muskets, it was .75 English caliber ball. The French uh, Charleville muskets, it would have been a 69 caliber. And of course, at maximum range of 100 yards. However, uh, muskets were also proven effective at closer ranges, you know, like 50 yards. The use of speed and shock alone could uh, break an opponent's side, resulting in casualties, formations coming apart to causing disorder, where the side with the upper hand could fix their bayonets and finish the final leg of the task before them on the battlefield. And maybe I've said it before, but I'll say it again for those of you who are new uh, to my podcasts. Um, whenever you hear the word bayonet, uh, bayonet is French. It comes from the region of uh, Bayonne, France. And there is a place in New Jersey, believe it or not, called Bayonne, New Jersey. B-A-Y-O-N-N-E. Same spelling as Bayonne, France. So bayonets, it, uh, when you think of the word bayonets, it's a French term. But bayonets derive from Bayonne, France. What exactly is uh, buck and ball? I didn't know about buck and ball until a few years ago uh, when I uh, read uh, Steve Vogel's book, Through the Perilous Fight, from the burning of um, Washington to the Star-Spangled Banner in the six weeks of um, saved in the six weeks that saved America from the War of eighteen twelve. I learned about the term buck and ball through having read that book, and I suspect most of you probably don't know what buck and ball is, but that's okay. I, I'm here to uh, give you the uh, to give you a good uh, 101 interpretation of it. Buck and ball is a measure or a technique that's commonly used by it was commonly used by the Continental Army, where a large round lead musket ball got placed inside the musket but it had attached to it anywhere from three to four smaller size pieces of shot, meaning each discharge or shot fired sent not one, but multiple shots at the enemy with the intention on having devastating impacts. So let's say, for example, folks, you have 60 men in a straight line, a 60-man company, I'll say this, each man has one lead musket ball and four pieces of shot attached. 
okay, you have a 60-man company. Each man has the one lead musket ball with four pieces of shot. If all 60 men fire at the same time, folks, what does that mean? 240 firings altogether, downrange with one volley. Talk about some destructive uh, force. Talk about what destructive um, casualties could be brought on. I mean, yes, linear warfare isn't so much about knocking down X number of men. It's it's really more about how, how are you going to take a command and control once the enemy um, starts coming apart. But for but if you have a 60-man company and they can send 240 firings altogether downrange with one volley, and remember, if you have lots of men lined up and they fire at the same time, the greater the volley you can get in terms of being able to knock down more than one man from the opposite side. Pretty deadly, to, to say the least. Um, another thing I did forget to mention about the muskets is that the muskets could be fired roughly two times per minute. This upcoming fight at Utah Springs would serve as a tough test for both armies. Given the sun itself was already well up, and the temperature was rising steadily with no end in sight. So if the temperature is rising steadily with no end in sight, and here we are in early September 1781, is it fair to say that the temperature is going to be between the mid-80s and low-90s? Yes. And are many of these British soldiers accustomed to fighting in this kind of weather? No. Are a lot of the American troops, have they been accustomed to fighting in this weather? Yes. Not just the, the natives from North and South Carolina, but even those who've been fighting in the Southern Campaign uh, from Maryland and Delaware since early 1780. So they've been accustomed to it by now, but remember, Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Stewart and a handful of his uh, British units did not arrive into South Carolina until uh, early June 1781, so they are still getting acclimated with the weather. Well, we've covered a lot of ground in this uh, podcast segment, and when I'm on the air again next, we are going to talk about the battle, uh, the chapter that, that focuses on the following, The Battle Develops. Is it fair to say that we will now get into actual battlefield combat? Yes. So we have a lot uh, to look forward to uh, when we're on when I'm on the air again next with you all. But uh, thank you again for being such ardent listeners. Without you guys, I'm not sure where I would be. But continue to get the word out to those whom would like to uh, come to Anchor. And if you know of people who would like to Anchor, would like to come on Anchor Podcasts, just tell them it's free to join. The opportunities are limitless, and once they get going, the results go beyond the sky's ceiling. They won't regret it for one minute. Take care for now, and wherever you all may live, stay safe.